welcome to another edition of Manor College's Movers and Shakers. My name is Anthony Machinsky, the Marketing Communications Manager at Manor College. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. We're glad to have you here. We're going to be telling some of the stories of those who made an impact on Manor College. Last month, we spoke to Dr. Sheree Crosby, so I ask you to check out that episode. And today, we're going to speak to her co-worker, Professor Mike Landis. Professor Landis is a professor of philosophy, the chair of Humanities and Social Sciences Division of Arts and Sciences, and the director of the Liberal Studies Baccalaureate Program at Manor College. Our conversation delves into his 29 years at Manor College, the differences between the early 90s and today, what the students of Manor College have taught him, and you get a chance to learn about a job he once had that took him to a really unique and amazing place. Thank you for listening, and here's Professor Landis. So, Mike, I want to uh, I want to start with um, your your Manor College journey. So, when did you start? Um, how did you discover Manor? How did you first um, How did you first find Manor? Okay, it, it all began in spring of 1994. I'm going back, and I, at that point, I had I came I, I had graduated from grad school in '90. I came and moved down here with uh, with my now wife Cindy. And uh, she was a member of the Pennsylvania Bar. So, and we, we I, I got my first job was at the Jenkintown Public Library, which was a great, it was a truly idyllic job, but not, it didn't compensate very well, but I really enjoyed that. So there's a, there's a reason I'm, well, while at the library, my boss, the head librarian, a woman named Joan Markham, um, I got to meet her youngest son, the youngest of eight children, uh, Greg Markham. Um, so it turns out, Greg at that time was enrolled at Manor. He's a Manor alum, and he's still my best friend right now, 30 years later. But he was the one that introduced me to Manor. I, I didn't know Manor existed at that point. I, I, you know, I put my CVs out to many colleges using like Peterson's Guides. Um, so he, he brought to my attention um, that he was at Manor College. It was only five or ten, seven minutes maybe from the Jenkintown Library. And that there was a wonderful woman who was the, um, ter- uh, at that point, she was the director of the liberal arts program as well as the chair of the liberal arts division, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, Dr. Maddie Seltzer. So she, he said, you really like her. She's looking for people to teach English and philosophy and religion. So he said, you ought to send your CV to her. And so, you know, um, things happened. We met and we had a wonderful interview. And all of a sudden, I'm teaching English class. I started with English composition at first, but then quickly went more into my graduate um, areas, which was philosophy and religion. And then by 1995, um, the the director of the Learning Center, uh, John Boyd, his name was, he he was retiring from Manor. So that position opened, and I applied for that position and went through the interviewing process and then was selected to become the director of the learning center as well as, uh, it was a faculty position as well as a teacher, so I would always teach at least three courses, if not four courses per semester. Um, so, and it was from that period on that I sort of, uh, you know, my, that was the beginning of my relationship with Manor and my, um, you know, the, that, that this almost 30 year trajectory that I've been on now, yeah. Did you think when you started that you were gonna be here for 30 years? Um. I really didn't know. I didn't. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I, I quickly really found that this was my niche. I really found that this, the, just the nature of the community, the nature of the students that we serve, the mission of the college. I really felt comfortable here. 
I really felt comfortable with the level of uh, this, this kind of community sense that we have here. Also the high level of collegiality. And I was really refreshed by the, um, just sort of um, the openness to you're not being put into kind of a, a, a departmental form as if you were at maybe a university, but be given some latitude to be creative and to use your creative energies in the service of you know, developing real student-centered courses and pedagogy. And so, and then quickly, as we all do, we, we get many hats, we gain many hats, and I took on many new roles as the years went on. And it was really, that, that kind of, that, that aligns nicely with my personality. I don't like to be specialized. I like to, I'm more of a generalist. I like interdisciplinary things. So it was great to have those multiple hats and to do those multiple, play those multiple roles here. So as, as the years went on, I was like, yeah, this is my place. I really feel like, um, you know, that sometimes people use the metaphor of being called, you know, it's usually in religious circles, but I, I felt that way. Like somehow fate or whatever brought me to this place and I quickly found that this was my, my, my niche, my home. Um, I liked all the aspects of, e even the physical location is perfect. This little piece of, it seems to me a little piece of country in the <laughs> middle of a highly developed urban area or metropolitan area. Yeah. I say I know before as we talked about like all the places you can explore and for, for yeah. such a campus that you know, when you look at it, it's it's a couple buildings and some acreage. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot to do, you know, in such a small place. Um, what was it about Manor uh, that you feel like has changed in those 30 years? Like, what um, was it, like, w walk me through what Manor was like uh, in 1994, is that right? Yeah, 1994. Um, you know, there were things that, uh, I, I think back to the way we evolved as an institution, I and mean, in the way the rest of society has evolved. Uh, in those days, you know, things were a little more fuzzy in those days. Uh, even you know, we, we were middle states accredited, but even the uh, accreditation process was more, it was less quantitative, more narrative and warm. But as, and as we evolved as a school and as the greater society evolved, now there's a much higher level of play. There's much more responsibility. Um, and then as we entered into our bachelor's or baccalaureate awarding um, version or iteration here, and then you know, we're, we're up into a new level where we have a higher level of responsibility in terms of um, assessment and in terms of data collection. Um, so that, that, I see that, but it never changed the fundamental nature of the school, you know, that the, I, just the, who we are and who we identify as as a function of our mission and as a function of the students that we serve. Um, it was always a very, another, another thing I found really, really extraordinary about Manor is the, uh, the diversity of the students at Manor. We always had a huge, um, relative to our population, a huge percentage of our students are international students or students who are first-generation American students or students who are first-generation college students. So it's a very diverse campus and that always resonated well with me. That's the kind of environment that I want to be in, a real cosmopolitan environment. Um, I remember when I first started, we had an ESL director. Her name was Jane G. And I, I, the Learning Center actually is we're over in the Mother of Perpetual Help uh, building on the bottom floor where one of the vet tech it's the surgical suite now. That was the learning center for a long time. So Jane G., the director of ESL, and I were over there. So I got 
I developed a really nice rapport with the international students, uh, students for whom English was a second language or English language learners is the new term now for those students. So they always brought a real richness to this small campus. Um, and I think the college's identity too as a, as a, a bazillion Catholic college founded by the Sisters of St. Basil the Great it really also gives it that kind of um, international flavor to it. So it was I say it's not every day you see Ukrainian sisters walking around yeah. campus and um, you know speaking Ukrainian on top of yeah. and some, you know and some Spanish of the people who and, work and, here. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, that whole Eastern European it, it really gave me an education in Eastern European culture history. In the old days, we had the Ukrainian festival here, so we all volunteered at the Ukrainian festival every year, and. Um, you know, I met so many people from the Ukrainian community, the greater Ukrainian community in the area. I remember I, I always liked to work this one food where we were, we, we served these, um, you know, because they call them perohe, pierogies. Yeah, yeah. And also these things called halopcha, which is like cabbage, uh, it's meat, cabbage stuffed with meat. It's, um... And I think they pronounce it halopcha. The Polish version is Gwumki, I think. Yeah, that's, well, that's yeah, what my, yeah, yeah. my grandmother makes them all the time. And anytime <laughs> you say it, I'm like, oh, okay. Like, like, I'm like, I think I know that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ukraine's just, all, my grandmother likes to say that like all the, the European, Eastern European countries have like similar things. Yeah. They all call them different yeah, things. Variations on the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I really enjoyed Like, That was my favorite thing to do was work the food where people would buy platters of cholupcha and, and pierogies or pierogies, I guess. And, you know, it was nice to meet all the people from the greater community as well as, you know, work collegially with the people of that manner. And Sister Frances, well, she was the one who really was in charge of these festivals. And they would have pay rides, uh, the farm, uh, I don't know what his name, but the guy who drives the tractor over here, he would do pay <laughs> rides here. And they would have all kinds of Ukrainian, like they would have dancing and they would have the pisanki, the egg painting. So it was a real education for me. Um, I was going to say, I was going to ask you what the biggest thing you learned is, and it seems like just kind of that intro to Ukrainian heritage as a yeah, whole. Yeah, and there, you know, there's certain great pe there are people who work here who are like these repositories of information about um, Ukrainian culture, like here's Kristina Prokopovich and Ann Kachula and Nick Rudnitsky. Like they really, they, re they really know the culture, they speak the language, they're great ambassadors for the culture. So. And I, I think the thing that I... I, I really liked in my time that, that I, I think you probably would say the same thing is it's not, it's not pushed on you. It's not like, oh, like you're here, you're, you're Ukrainian now, regardless yeah. of what your background was. Like, hey, like we want you to be part of these things and, and do this, but at the same time, like, you know, like this is our, this is our heritage. Be you yeah. also. Isn't there, there's a question in the graduate survey about that sense of Ukrainian heritage, and it does it, it, it trickles from many different areas. It's not forced upon us, but it is very evident in different aspects of the school. So that's, that's really great. And, uh, but not, like you brought up too, like, it, but there's a whole vast range of students coming from all over the world. Like we have a significant number of Latinx students from Central America, South America, a huge number of students relative to our size coming from various West African countries, North African countries. I have a student right now who's from Morocco. She's really interesting to talk about Morocco. I've never been there, but I want to, it was on my bucket list. And I once gazed at it when I, I was in Gibraltar. <laughs> and I looked across the street and I saw Morocco and I, I, I really want to go there. How many, 
it's got to be cool to kind of like, you know, over 30 years, like, have you ever thought about how many different countries were represented? Yeah, I should write these down. I mean, one time, I remember one of the most interesting persons I was talking to was a, a, a gentleman um, who was from what's now called North Sudan, the, the Muslim part of, it, Sudan used to be one country, now it's North Sudan and South Sudan. So North Sudan, the capital is Khartoum, and it's a, it's a Muslim country, and um, he, and he was in one of my classes, and he, like I had these ideas, like I thought it was all desert there. He said, no, there's actually an agricultural area in Sudan that's very green, and I said, like, oh, I didn't know that. And then he, I know he wanted, we were talking about getting his wife to come and just do a slideshow about Sudan, to kind of, just as a kind of opportunity for people who may know nothing about Sudan or just a little bit about Sudan, um, to get more ideas of what it's like to live in Sudan. And, so that's the kind of, yeah, those conversations are maybe the, one of the richest aspects of my 30 years here is just um, learning or co-learning with other students um, through our exchanges and our conversations. And um, even students from just in Philly, neighborhoods in Philly, learning about what life is like. I remember in one English class, one composition class, was we, we used to have a teen-taught honors English class that went on for 19 years at Manor, one, English 101 and 102. And I taught it with Dr. Seltzer. And one, we, one essay, we, they would write about the place they lived. Or, and one student was writing about what it was like living on Diamond Street in Philadelphia. And it was a really powerful essay about it sort of, you know, just sort of um, upending all the stereotypes that people have when you think about North Philly and what life is like in North Philly. It was a really wonderful essay about the community there and the people. And so this, this you know, get this access to all these life stories and experiences and... It's really exciting. Yeah. I say, I imagine you know, there, you're in a, in a really unique spot, um, both as an educator, but also having done English. That so you get all these, you know, the students who allow themselves to be open and be creative get to yeah. tell those stories of like a Diamond Street or of North Sudan or, you know, their their backgrounds. Yeah. In, in general, what what's some of the um, things you learned about you know maybe Manor through its students or, or about the students of Manor itself? Well, I, I keep, I, I, you know, it's always, it's always um, a continuing learning process, I guess, because I, I'm dealing with new generations. Like, I'm thinking, I thought to myself as I was walking in today, like, when I started here, I was educating people who are still Gen X, actually, the tail end of Gen X. And then we went into, I, I think after came Gen, it was Gen Y, mm -hmm. and then there was the Millennials, and now the Gen Z. So I, I'm, I'm always trying to I, I've never mastered these gener what, what's important to gen these this, these different generations, but I try. Like the what what is the music they like? How do they see the world? What's what's of priority to them? How do they like? How do they learn? Like there's different learning styles that you associate with each different generation. So, um, so I, you know, I was just talking to Rich, the librarian today, about like, well, in the old days, people would go to if they had a project, a research project, they would go to the library, look at books, but that, that's a thing of the past now. Everything's digitized and electronic now. So that the idea of opening a book would be very foreign. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, so, most of mine would have been the same way, where you go on Google, and if I need to find the book, I can find the book, but I can yeah. get the excerpt I need. You know, it's not reading 20 pages of a book yeah. to if find have, an excerpt. If I have it's a database find... that you have access to through your library that, you know, you... Yeah, you have all that information from a PC. It really disincentivizes coming in to get... I was telling my class, was it yesterday, about um, there's an encyclopedia of religion that we have in the library. It's really a wonderful multi-volume set. Every, 
article is signed by the author. But it was kind of like telling them about vinyl records. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, there are these things called books, and there's a set we have in the library that are really interesting. But <laughs> I do a pro years ago. I used to I used to do this one assignment where it would we would have to come to the library, and the rule was you can only use traditional text just to get them to used to looking at indices and how to navigate texts and. Uh, and they were all reference books. So it wasn't like they had to read full volumes, but so that was really interesting. But it, you know, it it helps. I went my interactions with students, especially when I used to be the director of the learning center. I've got more of this even when I helped students or supported students through from tutoring, for example. It really gave me a good insight into how students learn and what works for them and what doesn't work for them, and also their perspective their perspective on what the college offers, the college community. Um, now my own son is enrolled. He has a, taking a few courses as a high school student. So I'm getting even more sort of an insight in what it feels like to be a student. How is it, how is it different being the parent of a student as opposed to being like the teacher? Like what are you noticing different as a parent that you didn't notice as an educator? I, talked, I told Doc Mark, Dr. Minnick, the provost, I said, this is the greatest experience I could ever have because now for the first time I can really, I can really, I really understand what our learning management system looks like from the vantage point of a student and the Echo 360 software that we use to do live streaming and record and what students face that first week of class. Like I can, I could speculate about that through my conversations with students but when you're a parent, you really, like, I'm there with my son. We're logging on. You know, I remember the one day his password wouldn't work. So <laughs> we reached out to help desk at manor.edu. And IT is incredible. They got right back. I got him hooked up. Right, even, even before his first class started that day, they got his password reset and he was in. And um, so it really boosted his confidence. But now I can see, too, like, when we're looking at the learning management system interface, um, what works, what doesn't work, what's confusing, what's helpful. And uh, so it's good to have that vantage point now. And I, I can't say I didn't have some of that before just through conversations with students, but it's much more you know, direct now. Because um, for many of our for teachers, it's hard to, it's hard, I, I guess if you're in any aspect of production, like you might make a film and you don't know what it looks, what it's gonna look like to your audience and how they're gonna react to it. That's sort of the unknown variable. And mm -hmm. so, so now I have a more, a fuller idea of what it's like. <laughs> so he um, wants to come, he loves Manor. He's, he wants to come to Manor when he gets his, you know, when he finishes high school. And uh, so. Well, you know, let's talk more about Manor then and now. So um, I feel like technology is one of those big things that's absolutely, changed. Absolutely, yeah. Um, now that you can, hey, I'm gonna hit a button and record and broadcast and. Yeah, we're yeah. in an optimal place with that. I mean, I I, that Echo 360 that we brought on with the pandemic and we, we purchased a, a license with it. Or, man, that, that thing is a powerful tool for live streaming to students who are remote. So they're doing that synchronous modality and then you can record the live stream and then it's available to students, you know, forever, theoretically. And uh, like they can asynchronously, they can review it, review it. Um, so that's like, wow. I remember, I mean, the beginning back in 94, I mean, technology was minimal. When I, you know, when I started directing the Learning Center, it was, a, it was almost comical. We had, we had two dusty old Apple IIe PCs, <laughs> and we were using uh, MS-DOS was the way you interfaced with those things. We didn't have a network at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So, and they, 
We got those from the finance office, actually. <laughs> they, they were getting rid of them. They got new computers, so. And you had chalkboards with actual chalk? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah they, <laughs> Most of the grease boards we use now. <laughs> they were great. Uh, you know, the one, the one good thing about chalkboards is that if, if, if unlike technology, if, like the, if the internet goes down, you're sunk. But in the old days, you always had your chalk and your chalkboard and your, you know, I had these big binders with my lecture notes in them. In huge three-ring binders, I always could bring with me. You know, so it's like, <laughs> hey, I can go in. I could if if the building were on fire, I could go outside and teach on the parking lot. You know? <laughs> so, but now, you know, now we're tethered more to technology. Like if the if um, if our internet service goes down, like we're really down. You know? Yeah. But I remember the evolution, like when we started getting our first network, and then. Um, and then as things became more and more refined over the years. When did you first get a Manor College email? Oh, God, that's a good question. Because I would have been in that same time frame, yeah, right? Yeah, the, the, at manor.edu. I, I really can't. I'd have to look back and think <laughs> about that. Like, you go back through your emails through 15,000 yeah, or yeah. however many are in I, there I to guess see. I could go back. I probably have some archived in there that go back to the early aughts, I think. I guess it's somewhere <laughs> along the line. They got, we all of a sudden had that new means of communicating with each other. Yeah. What's been the easiest or, or the easiest change for you and, and the hardest transition for you um, in, so that, in that 30 years? I, you know, I think, I mean, with technology, there were, there, were, there were easy times and hard times to transition with technology. Sometimes when you, um, you know, when you, you, you purchase a new technology or you start uh, integrating a new technology, you got to go through all the bugs, you know. So I remember, like, when we got our first learning management system, which was called Web Study, that was a little bit challenging. Now, Canvas is so much more user friendly, so transitioning into Canvas was not only easy, but it's kind of like a godsend. Thank you. I'm glad that product exists. It's so <laughs> it's so easy from the vantage point of a teacher. It's so easy from the vantage point of a student. Um, so that what that the the technology. Uh, you know, it, there, there, are, there are technological transitions that were smooth and technological transitions that were kind of complicated. Um, so one of the more difficult, I, I think when we transitioned, to, when we were, we were um, planning the baccalaureate degrees, when we switched from a, just an exclusively associate degree awarding institution to a bachelor's or baccalaureate, that was very challenging. Um, how, does that, how does that work? Because I, I think for someone like me who doesn't know that, yeah, it's like, okay, cool, add classes that have threes and fours in them instead of ones and twos. Yeah. What, what goes into it for you guys? Like, what, what were some of the challenges you guys faced? A lot, a lot of planning, I mean, as far as just being able to do those transitions with minimal costs. I mean, not bringing on new people or new directors, and just, but being able to modify programs that we have in order to be able to convert them to the 300 level and the 400 level. And then also we had to get... Pennsylvania Department of Education approval and the Middle States Commission on Higher Education approval, and that was a lot of that was done by Dr. Perry. It was done at the administrative level to a large degree, but we had to create something that was going to be something that Middle States would say, "Yes, we approve that," and that that was challenging. Uh, really, was challenging to reformulate, and we had to you know we had to get out of our associates' mindset too and think about offering courses at the 300 and 400 level, and then you also have to think about making sure we can attract students to populate those courses because you can't run courses with like one or two people in them. So it was really a real, it was really logistically um, complex. And you know, we have a small faculty here, so it's, we really, really had to 
uh, synergize, work collaboratively together, be creative, think out of the box, and all those things to make it happen. And we did. We made it you know, very successfully with the bachelor BBA programs and the, the uh, criminal justice programs and child development programs. Um, so I think like 16, 17 is when yeah. we, get, we get the baccalaureate on campus. Yeah, I remember the launch. I mean, what was, Kelly's launch. What was it like for, for you? I mean, what is it like when that process is over and now it's... It was exciting. Really, I was really excited about it. I was really excited about um, because it opens up a whole new domain that we hadn't yet explored. And uh, it was exciting. I remember, I remember the launch. It was a big, a big to-do and we were making videos and for marketing and um, just and then as time went on we you know we have to refine as we go along like the release of anything whether it's a, a new operating system or you got to refine as you go along but I, I was very enthused about it I, I mean I, I, I enjoy teaching 300 level classes um, it's exciting we were creating new courses like it, it was a great it was a great sort of a I don't know a, an outlet for your creative energy. I was going to say, because you were talking about earlier about like you like being creative and manner has kind of been, I don't want to say it's not super rigid, but <laughs> like I feel like there's a little bit of, of wiggle room on with it um, that you're allowed that freedom to be creative. Mm -hmm. And I think for yeah. you, like, I imagine that's got to be like, a, ooh, all right, like, yeah, got to clean how many classes? Yeah, let's yeah, let's, let's, let's figure it. this out, yeah, right? Let's do it. Yeah, it was, I was amazing. It was like, yeah, we, we weren't so. We weren't so, like some schools are so departmentally rigid and political that he, like here's the cookie cutter template, just follow it, you know. <laughs> but here is a sort of this, this like fundamental spirit of creativity, collaboration, collegiality. I remember like when Dr. Seltzer and I, we just, we, we, we formulated the honors English classes and we, we were team teaching it and we had a lot of rich experiences with that. And, we went to a lot of conferences all over the country to talk about what we did in those classes, what was what we learned through the process of not only creating that 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 interface, but also um, just doing it. You know, over the years, so it was exciting. It was real exciting. It's like, yeah, that, you know, this little college here on the edge of Jenkintown just has this incredible—I don't know—this incredible spirit of incredible energy and vitality and collegiality, like. Who could ask for anything better? You know, this is like the perfect place. And you know, the students are very open, and they're very, you know, they if you are enthusiastic, they catch on really quickly, and they contribute too. It's a, it's an interchange. I mean, it's an exchange in a way, and I like that. You know, there's uh, all kinds of extraordinary people who come to Manor with great creative energy and uh, a huge amount of uh, capacity and potential. And do you have a favorite class that you teach? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy RS-103, which is called World Religions, which is a comparative religions class. And I've, you know, I've taught it for a long time, but I, I really truly enjoy that class, maybe more so than all other classes. And then I'm, I'm teaching this class, at, it's run, this is the second time it's running at the 300 level. It's called Neuroscience and Religion, which is sort of a, it, it's really based upon the work of a, a, a person named Andrew Newberg, who's at Jefferson University, the Marcus uh, Institute of Integrated Health. And he's a psychiatrist, but he calls himself a neurotheologian. He, he wants to integrate the sciences and religious studies to understand more about the nature of religion. And so it's really cutting edge. And we, we have, a, like, very few schools in the world have courses in neuroscience and religion. 
So we're, we're one of them. And you know, I have a class, right, it's, it's running now. Um, I have, I think I have like 10 students in the class. And uh, so it's a really, I, I feel, I'm, I'm very happy that we could be on the vanguard of this particular field. Um, and you know, I tell the students like, what you're going to what you're going to expose or evoke from the material will become the future of the discipline, really. And we we met Andrew but when it ran in spring of 2019. Andrew Newberg was speaking at Temple Beth Shalom in Elkins Park. I live right next to there, so we the student four students and I met for that presentation. We met Dr. Newberg. He signed all our books, and he said, "Yeah, please, please keep you know." He's very impressed that we have a course, and, and he said, please, you know, always send me questions if you have questions. Uh, so I was really, wow, this is, what, a, what an uncanny kind of convergence of all these things. And so that, 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 I like that class, too. It only, it runs like once a year. It runs in the spring, and then, so, but I'm, I'm really enjoying the kind of, it's very, um, it, not just the fact that we're one of the few colleges that have a course in this field, but the field itself is so novel, it's so new, so it's really exciting to be in that pioneering mode here with our own manner students, you know. What is it about philosophy? Because you said you started as an English professor, yeah. and then yeah. kind of shifted more towards the religion and philosophy. Yeah. What, what is it about philosophy for you that um, really keeps you, keeps you going? Well, I, I think it's that, it's, I think Bert, I, I'll quote somebody, there, there's, a, there's an English philosopher, British philosopher from the 20th century named Bertrand Russell, and one of, the, one of the texts that we use in the, the intro level philosophy class is a text that he wrote called um, The Value of Philosophy. It's part of a bigger book that he wrote called The Problems of Philosophy. So it, the whole book is about trying to justify the field of philosophy to people who think it has no value. So and he always says, well, philosophy is not about answers. Like that's, that's like applied science. Philosophy is about asking the big questions, right? So I was like, yeah, that's me, man. I, I want to, I've got this like, I don't know, this, this really, really strong native spirit of inquiry and curiosity and wonder about the world. So philosophy is the right field to be in if you want to ask the big questions and move through boldly and find new answers, perhaps, or new perspectives or new horizons. So that's why, yeah, that's why I think it's like philosophy. I think that's why I was always had that drawn towards that. <laughs> um, and it, it is very practical because it, it, I think... You know, if you look at someone like Steve Jobs, for example, with, with Apple, it's like the reason he was so successful is because he thought out of the box. You know, he was, he had his own, if you ever see this, there's a movie about him, and he had a very powerful experience in, in the East, and he was into Eastern religion, and it just sort of opened up his mind, and he was able to think out of the box, and he generated a, 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 a what is a, it's, I don't know if it's a trillion dollar industry at this point, but. If not, it's close, it's yeah. Close. Yeah, and that was just because he thought philosophically rather than just stuck in a mind's got stuck in a mindset. So philosophy, yeah, I think ah, that's that's it's a great um, it's a great medium to exercise your native spirit of curiosity, and and that's why I find like with manner students are they're extraordinary in the sense that they're really they're really eager to ignite that spirit of curiosity. Like they may have never been allowed to do that at the secondary or primary level, but when they get here, they thrive because all of a sudden. You, you, you're kind of feeding the fire, and you know it, it just kind of fla flares up into this, and they become lifelong learners and interested in asking big questions and finding out who they are and finding out more about the world. And, um, and I, I think maybe I, I don't know if I'm wrong on this, but I think 
more so than maybe at an elite institution where students come in with a high sense of entitlement and are more rigid in their beliefs and think they know it all. Manner students to be much seem to be very open students. You know. So I want to shift gears off okay. of manner for a okay. minute. Um, outside of manner, mm -hmm. I know we were talking about it before. Biker, snowshoer, yeah, like skier. Not not downhill, just cross yeah, <laughs> cross country yeah, skiing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so is it fair to call you an outdoorsman? Yeah, I, I, I thrive <laughs> in the outdoor. Like I I prefer to be outdoors, like even in the depths of winter, like. 23 of the 24 hours of the day. <laughs> I like to warm up for an hour, but uh, yeah, I like the outdoor. And I, you know, I, I guess I would call myself an amateur naturalist too. You know, I like to look at nature and I like to learn about geology and biology. And Do you have a favorite place, uh, I'll, I'll put you on the spot, a favorite place locally mm -hmm. and a favorite place, um, you know, I'll say international. Assuming you've, well, I know you've been international. So yeah. Um, you know, a favorite place locally and a favorite place internationally that you'd recommend to people? Okay, well, I locally definitely, it, it's, it's strange, it's seven minutes from Manor, Lorimer Park, which is a county park, um, and it's mainly in Addington and Rockledge, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary place. It's not huge, like, relative to a national park in the western United States, or, but it's, it's just got some kind of the right combination of things in there, you know, it's got rustic trails, it's got um, uh, the Pennypack Creek itself and a tributary called Harper Run that flows into that into the Pennypack. And it just is this extraordinary little microclimate there with a, you know, a rich sort of mixed hardwood forest, lots of wildlife. And, and all kind of being like in the shadow of one of the biggest cities in the nation. Yeah, it's like, wow, I can't believe we're right on the edge of Philadelphia here. And even if you go into Pennypack, you can go down into the Pennypack Park proper it's, it's amazing that there's this piece of open space, this land in, in the middle of this metropolitan area. Wissahickon Park's up there, too. I like, I've really grown to love the Wissahickon, you know. And what about internationally? Um, I'm gonna, I, I, or one, nationally, for that matter, if, you're, yeah, if you stick, have one that's I'll there. I'll stick in the U.S. because I, 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 when I was in, in graduate school, 1988, I, one summer I went and worked in Alaska, a place called Glacier Bay, Alaska, which is... Just northwest of the capital of Alaska, which is Juneau, down in the Panhandle, and that was an extraordinary place with these massive tidewater glaciers calving into the into the bay. And there's a range called the Fairweather Range. Um, so I, I do I, I don't do it much anymore, but I used to be in, I was a climber, a mountainist, a mountaineer, an alpinist, whatever. So I would do like mixed route climbing, and I did climbing in, in the Fairweather Mountains and. So I, I really enjoyed that environment because it was this combination of the bay itself and you could go sea kayaking in there and encounter like a pod of killer whales. But then you also <laughs> had these mountains coming right out, right up, you know. I mean, the, the elevations there, may have, the highest mountain was like 11,000 feet. And you think, well, that's not that high relative to like maybe the Rockies in Colorado. But the thing is, they come right out of sea level, so they look immense. Whereas in Colorado, you're up at like 8,000 feet, and then the mountains maybe go up to 15 or 14, actually. So when you're in when you're Glacier Bay, the, the, the landscape itself is extraordinarily dynamic, and the, the relief is, a, is breathtaking. You know? What was the work you were doing in, in Alaska? It was silly. It was, I, was, I, just went, I, went, I waited tables in the, in the Glacier Bay National Park Lodge. How there. old were you? I was 22, and at that point, I was in divinity school up at Yale Divinity School, and 
So there was a program called a Christian Ministry in the National Park. So it's sort of unofficially doing ministry in that in the park with the people who work there, my other my co-employees. So that's amazing. Uh, that's I I don't it's, even know how many people would know that about you. It's weird. It's just like the weird. Like I just saw this thing when I was in uh, and I saw a uh, oh, Christian Ministry in the National Park, and I always wanted to go to Alaska. So I said, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to go. And yeah, you had to work a job. So I, like I would work in the lodge. There was a lodge there. People would fly in every day. There were also cruise ships that would go up into the bay. And I would wait tables for two shifts a day. And then we, we always had two or three days off a week to go up into the back country. And, uh, you, you know, or, and I, I had a week off, I remember, where we got float plane to this very remote place called Latuya Bay. And me and six other people did some backpacking out there. And how long did you do that for? Just to the summer. That was just that summer. It was the summer of '88. I think I got there May, early May, and I left early September. So I, I can't say I wintered through Alaska. You know, it was in the no, summer. but I mean, it's probably still pretty. You know, what's the highest temperature at that point? It's still it, probably pretty it, low, right? Uh, in the in the middle of summer, because the days are so long. I remember solstice. It was like. The sun barely set. It was like 21 hours of daylight. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I so forgot you, that. you get up to 80 sometimes. But if you get in the high country, it was really cold. I mean, there are glaciers up there. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, you know. But, but yeah, it depends, I guess, elevation where you're at. And, uh, but, and I wasn't up in, like, northern Alaska. Like, if you're up on the, the northern slopes of the Brooks Range, it's a different Alaska, you know. Than, uh, but that, I think that, that was, I would recommend... If you can go to Alaska, go to Alaska. It's huge. The country is huge. The wildlife is, is breathtaking, you know. Now I might have to plan my next trip. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> on the bucket list. It's, you know, there's so many shows about Alaska now. I can't believe it's just sort of exploded since the 1980s, you know, as far as popularity. and um, Totally different. Yeah. You think, well, it's a different world than the middle Atlantic. With, uh, but I, I, you know, I want to always, I always think like, yeah, but you know what? There's extraordinary stuff like Lorimer just right here, or or Manor Woods for that. We were just talking about yeah, Manor yeah. Woods. It's like, man, there's a there's a pair of beaver who built a lodge and have a dam back there, and it's like, you know, it's like, well, we're our little piece of Wyoming here, you know? Yeah, especially if you're like, oh, like I'm gonna take a little like 15 minute lunch break and just walk, you know, yeah. back behind the woods and then come back and yeah. not be super lost and still see Joseph Hat Hall hanging out. And yeah. That's why I think these students, they've got like five-star, the ones who live in the residence hall, they got, it's just five-star real estate here. You know, they're living in this incredible place, a little piece of the country that is preserved, you know, against all the development around here. Yeah. I say, especially in such a busy area. Yeah. But. Yeah. So you think, wow, you, how, how can you land in a better place? You know, so. <laughs> and on that, I'll, I'll end it. But th Professor, thank you for yeah. joining thank us today. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I wanted to say thank you to Professor Landis for joining us on the podcast today. If you haven't already, you can listen to our past interviews and get the rest of our 75 stories for 75 years as they become available at www.manor.edu slash 75th. That's 75th with a T-H. Thank you for listening and have a good day.